Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 160th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Gabriel Shaheen. Gabriel is the founder of Falcon Wealth, an independent RIA based in the greater Los Angeles area that oversees nearly $200 million of assets under management for 370 clients. What's unique about Gabriel, though, is the way he's built his firm to $200 million of AUM from scratch in barely five years by spending proactively on marketing, as much as 10% to 20% of his annual revenue, amounting to almost $30,000 per month in marketing spending this year, on which he's typically able to make back nearly double the revenue of his marketing spent in the first 12 months alone, and of course, may have a client for life for all the years thereafter. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Gabriel allocates his proactive marketing dollars, from spending on outsourced SEO experts in Google AdWords to various paid web listings like NAPFA, the CFP board and smart asset, paying for a weekly radio show, and spending as much as $8,000 per mailing for an outside firm to help him market educational classes that he uses to teach personal finance and establish a relationship with the students, some of whom eventually decide to become clients as well. We also talk about how Gabriel handles the sales process, given the amount of leads he's able to generate with his proactive marketing, why he ultimately decided to hire a standalone business development associate to respond to all the inquiries and screen them within 10 minutes of contacting the firm, how Gabriel conducts his two-meeting sales process to deliver initial value to clients and then encourage them to work with him on an ongoing basis to implement, and how Gabriel gracefully handles the leads his marketing generates that may not have the financial wherewithal to be a good fit for his firm. And be certain to listen to the end, where Gabriel talks about struggles of going out on his own, how he ended up racking up nearly $50,000 in credit card debt doing his initial marketing to get his first clients in the door, the way he was able to attract some clients from his prior firm without violating his non-solicit agreement, and the challenge that even as the firm scales up the revenue much faster than the take-home profits, it becomes increasingly necessary to reinvest into the infrastructure of a growing advisory firm along the way, especially when he's growing quickly. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Gabriel Shaheen. Welcome, Gabriel Shaheen, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Excited to be here. I'm really excited about today's podcast episode and and, and a chance to talk a bit about marketing. We just actually put out on the Kits's platform, a big research study around advisor marketing, uh, you know, surveyed almost a thousand advisors of like, what do you do? What do you actually do? Like, where do you spend your time? And where do you spend your dollars on marketing and, and, and what works and what doesn't work? You know, like we had done it in part because I've always had this frustration in our advisor world that on the one hand, like almost every study says the number one way that advisors grow is through client referrals. And that most advisors spend no more than like one to two percent of their revenue on marketing, and and I had always looked at that and said, well, so is that because client referrals are such an amazing marketing strategy and they're really cost effective that you don't have to spend money on everything else, or is that because 
as advisors, we so can't figure out what to do for marketing purposes that we just don't spend any money. And so, of course, all of our clients come from referrals because that's all you would have if you didn't spend any money on marketing. That's kind of the only passive flow that that's left. And so we, we've been trying to delve deeper and understand, like, what do advisors actually do that works when they want to spend some money on marketing? If you got some dollars to put towards it, and I know you have spent a lot of time and effort and, and outright dollars just in the marketing world of trying to grow and market your firm. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk today about just, I don't know, lessons learned in advisor marketing. Like when you're actually ready to spend some money, what the heck do you do with it as it makes some <laughs> clients show up? You know, it's a it's a great question and it's different per advisor. I mean, what works for one advisor may not work for another, depending on what their personal skills sets are or what their firm skill sets are. And, you know, for us being uh, fee-only, uh, we do highlight heavily the fee-only, non-commissioned, fiduciary kind of focus, those buzzwords. But also uh, where it goes kind of per advisor, per person is, we do a lot through classes and we teach where we self-market the classes, where we hire external firms like FMT. And so there's, I mean, we're, we're spending a very healthy amount right now on marketing. And uh, I kind of always envisioned us spending about 10 to 20% of our firm's gross revenue on marketing. That was kind of an, in a perfect world to be 25%. But as you grow, that becomes harder because, you know, whether we double in size, certain expenses are going to be fixed. So we're in this like purgatory state where this is kind of the toughest at Falcon Wealth Planning, uh, just by our mere size. And, you know, that that can be dif- difficult for a marketing budget. So that was quite a number just that you threw out there in, in kicking off. You, most advisory firms, you just, if we look at the industry benchmarking studies, spend one to 2% of their revenue on marketing related activities. So, you know, if you got a a half million dollar practice, uh, you're spending five to ten thousand uh, dollars a year. If you got a two million dollar practice, maybe you're spending twenty to forty thousand dollars a year, which at that point is like one really nice client appreciation event and probably a bunch of lunches with clients and maybe some attorneys and and accountants like that. The that level of dollars goes goes pretty quickly. And you're talking about like it's like literally an order of magnitude higher. Like take that one to two percent of of revenue on marketing and add a zero. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. There was a point in time we'd get a client or revenue or something would kick in and be like, okay, great. Let's double our Google budget. And they would just kind of look at me like, you know, what are you talking about? Just calm down. Let's in, let's enjoy part of this money. Let's have some, be more in the green than before. But in my brain, I look at it as we would have never received this client if it wasn't for this marketing budget. So technically those dollars, we've already built our forecast without that revenue coming in from that marketing source. And so for me, it's like, just give it all back to marketing. And so obviously things have changed since then where we have to be a little bit more mindful and thoughtful on when revenue comes into the firm. Uh, But at the same time, I mean, we are very committed to marketing. Paint us a little bit of a picture. I think first just of the firm and kind of the size and what it looks like today. And then I want to understand sort of how that translates into marketing, marketing dollars, marketing strategies. So tell us about the the advisory firm as it exists today. Yeah, uh, we are a fee-only financial planning firm with a heavy focus on tax planning. We have a staff of about 11 people. We have $200 million 
uh, management. We hit that earlier this month. We started March 5th of 2015. So, uh, so we are about four years, almost five years this uh, upcoming March. And we have advisory-wise, we have, uh, I guess we can say two and a half advisors, including myself. The half is not a CFP. He sits for the CFP in March. So right now he does uh, kind of the pre-screening information gathering for all of our firsts that we do. And then the CFPs will you know, give all the recommendations. Then we have a planning, which he's also the same gentleman's part of that planning. There's three people there, two people for operations, not including our chief compliance officer. And then we have uh, our CPA, who kind of helps with the planning, but uh, also now does uh, client taxes through a separate entity that we have. And then we have help for him along with ongoing market. Oh, yeah, with uh, ongoing operations and marketing. And then we just recently hired somebody about a maybe a month ago now. All he does is outbound calls to all our marketing channels because we are getting about 150 leads a month. And the problem with that is, you know, if they don't pick it up, we do a lot of front end calls. And, you know, we'll reach out to them the next month. And, you know, that could be an aggressive compounding effect when you just have a six month trickle on them. And eventually they'll get moved over to a email drip. So, so I just want to make sure I capture this because this is interesting from an organizational structure end. So, so 11 people. So there's you, you and another lead advisor and then a, a half person that's doing some support, non CFP moving that direction. You said three. So three people in planning, like, is it those three in planning? Those are the three in planning or you have like three more that do planning support stuff behind the scenes? Yeah, we have three more that's uh, that does really heavily in e-monies, building our e-money uh, platform, helping clients. Uh, so we use a lot of e-money. I mean, it's not just, hey, you have enough for retirement. We use it heavily for tax planning and just kind of showing our recommendations of what's, what's good, what's not good. And then we, what else do we do? We deliver the plans. Uh, they help go over the plans. There's a lot of intricacies that goes in. Interesting. So I'm going to presume then with sort of two slash two and a half advisors in, in this lead client facing position and three people in planning support, like the the advisor's role is is kind of really just like you are in the client facing meeting stuff and not much else because you've got three other people who are handling everything else that happens outside of that client meeting. Yes, kind of, kind of from my background, a lot of the stress was put on the advisor to build everything, um, to prepare for the meetings. With us, we literally go from one meeting to another. We just walk up, grab their file, go grab the client, and go sit down. So we're doing probably a light day would probably be four to five meetings a day, and there's times where it's seven to eight meetings where it's just. I mean, that's not what we want. That's way too many meetings. But at the same time, we're just grabbing that file and we're walking in to a meeting. So it's really nice. And so then two people in operations, kind of the get paperwork done, keep the wheels on the bus, uh, chief compliance officer, your CPA that's doing tax work for clients. And then a person, I guess, just to do all the like all the bird dogging and follow up on if you're going to do a whole bunch of marketing and you're going to make the phone ring with a whole bunch of leads, like someone has to respond to them. And it's not necessarily the most cost-effective thing for the most senior lead advisor to spend all of their time screening prospects. 
Right. I mean, before that, we had somebody else doing it, the person that was doing the first just information gathering. And then we realized that he just doesn't have enough time. And there was a lot of leads just, you know, every day he would come in, not only having three to four phone calls to do, not every day, you know, there's days he has five, there's days he has none, but he would also have maybe a hundred tasks to do in addition to that. And that's just not possible. It just came to a point of, we need to hire someone and thank God we did because the guy we got is an absolute stud. So help me understand this from the, like how this marketing and sales process works. And we'll, we'll get more in a few minutes into like you know, what you're doing for marketing to make the phone lead, ring and make these leads appear. But I, I just want to talk about the leads end for a moment. Because I think for, for most of us in traditional advisor world, you know, if we get a lead, uh, you know, client referred me, accountant called and said, hey, you should check this person out. Or maybe like, God bless someone actually used that contact form on the website and said, like, I'm, I heard about your firm and I would like to talk to someone. Like, I think that the natural style for almost all of us in advisor world is like, oh my God, I got a prospect. Like, the lead advisor takes that. The founder often takes that. Like, this is a sales opportunity. You put your best person who powers the growth of the firm and business development on that call from moment one to try to get them going because, you know, the client wanted to reach you and speak to you. So it's not like you, like you don't do that. There's there's another person involved who's talking to them and gathering information and doing other things before it even gets to you. So help me understand, like, what does this person do? And what is, you know, once someone shows up as a lead, like, what is the process about how they move through a sales experience with you? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good question and that's ever evolving as well cuz some of them will demand myself but you know the way we structured the firm we tried to be very smart about it. It's not Gabriel Wealth Management. It's Falcon Wealth Management. Everybody knows Falcon. I remember got it from uh, Churchill, uh, the market timing firm, the Fred Fern. I remember hearing him one day. He said he got interviewed, "Why did you name it Ch- Churchill?" He's like, "Well, nobody knows Fred Fern." And it's it, that just was made sense to me. Yeah, nobody knows Gabriel. Let's make it uh, Falcon. Everybody knows what that is. Uh, it's like the bird. But in regards to the process, so we're trying to separate that. You know, my kind of the company's. A, I'm a principal. I'm not the president, CEO, founder, owner. It's just I'm a principal of the firm. And so the process is is right when we get a lead, our market business development person will pick up the phone and call. And setting the proper expectation is huge. And so of uh, everybody here works as equals. Gabriel is the owner of the company. He, We have other people that act just like him. It's one voice. It's not like you go to a Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley and you have five advisors and they could arguably give you five different pieces of advice. Here, it's the same process with every advisor, the same form of advice. Uh, my goal is I try to review every single thing that comes through here so I know each situation of the client and will give recommendations as needed. So they do say I get involved and on the larger pieces, I will come in on what we call the second meeting, which is the meeting where we have them sign up for planning. And then from there, I might come in for another meeting and I do give them my information depending on the size of the client, if they need me to reach out at any time. So I'm involved, but I cannot service them. And that's being made very clear from the beginning. So help me understand how this follow-up works. Like I, you know, I, I, I go to the Falcon Wealth website and I, and I use the, you know, contact us or you like do your free assessment. I show up as a lead, you know, I've, I've sent you my information. So like what happens next from the, from the prospects end? Like who, Who's going to call me? 
when are they going to call me? I guess even are they going to call me or email me? Like what what happens next once I have given my information to Falcon and you know unleash the dogs on me? Yeah, great. So let's just say we get a lead between 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. What we'll do is we'll call them instantly. All right. First of all, I just want to point out like the fact that you have precision down to the time of when the lead comes in has already distinguished what we're talking about here from <laughs> pretty much everybody else, which is like if a lead comes in this week, here's what we do. You are down to if the lead comes in between 10 and 1. So, okay, keep keep going. Like we're down to time-specific windows. Right, because if a lead comes in at 5 p.m., you know you can't do a second follow-up call the same day. So there are there everything has a process here. A process-oriented firm was very important to scale. So if they do not pick up, we do not leave a voicemail. If uh, and then on the second, wait. Go so, around, so just yeah. I submit my information. Oh, I guess we're presuming I gave you a, a a phone number in addition to a an email address. So like first thing that happens is. Someone does a follow-up call like basically immediately because you actually have a person who's there all the time and this is their only job. So so they can do it immediately. So like the moment a digital lead or or I guess any lead comes in, like someone's on the phone same day, maybe even same hour to say, Hey, saw you submitted your information. I'm, you know, Joe from Falcon Wealth and I'm calling up call, following up on your inquiry. And I'll go as far as saying within 10 minutes. I would actually be annoyed if it's after 10 minutes. So there's a lot why? of... Uh, why? Har- har- why? Like that's, yeah. a, that's a hell of a high bar. I think for a lot of us are like, <laughs> I'm proud of, you know, like our goal for good service is we always return client phone calls within 24 hours. And, and I think for a lot of firms, like that is good service. So like a lot of us live in a, I'm going to respond in in the next day. You are bothered if it takes 11 minutes. So help me... Help me understand what's going on here. I just feel from, number one, experience, because Strike the Iron Wild taught, and obviously it was on their mind to go out of their way to make a request. And number two, I think it's Harvard Business has this this fancy chart that talks about if you contact them within, I think it is 10 minutes, or within an hour, within a day, just the time uh, percentage of not only contact, but I guess close, if that's a better word, really significantly reduces. Then it goes out two days, three days, a week, a month. So really just striking the iron while it's hot is very, very important. And it just shows that we're proactive. And it's not the advisor calling. I think it's different if it's an advisor calling. It's like, wow, this guy has nothing to do. What is he? He's just that hungry. I don't want to work with someone who's just starving and needs me as a client more than anything. No, we have someone that's their full-time job. That's an interesting point, right? Like if... If I call, if I submit an inquiry to a firm and like the founder calls me back in in eight minutes, I'm kind of wondering like, hey, appreciate the quick turnaround, but like, really, you didn't have any other clients to be to be talking to. You were just kind of hanging out by the internet, waiting to see what comes in. Whereas, you know, thank you for your inquiry to Falcon Wealth. I'm Joe from Falcon. I'm just following up to uh, on your inquiry. Now it's like, oh. This is a normal thing for them. They have a process. There's a person who does this. They apparently are serious about proactive and timely communication since they're getting back to me right away. Like it's an interesting point. It has a very different connotation when there's a team member that follows up promptly as opposed to the person, like the the advisor following up immediately. I agree. I mean, it's all about perspective. I mean, uh, if somebody does call me, we make it very clear as a firm, just as a process, if somebody else can help them. And even, I don't want to say even if I'm free, 
I won't because obviously each situation is different, but there's times I'm I'm like, I have $20 million. So I just sold my business and I really want to talk to Gabriel. Like, all right, I might do that call. (laughs) Yeah. Hold please. And literally that's probably (laughs) not too far off from that. So there are people that just demanded and uh, where they do want to talk to me because, you know, in the beginning it was just me. I was the only advisor for two years and all people know is me and whether it's from the radio, whether it's from teaching the class. So that w- that was hard. It still is kind of hard. But I think as we moved into our new building, as they see our name on the building, as they just see staff walking through the halls left and right, I mean, they're realizing very quickly, even with some of the clients to this day that I meet with when I'm kind of handing them off, they're realizing we are growing on a larger scale. So when this person calls, like, who do they say they are and and like what is the purpose and focus of that call like i'm calling to follow up on your inquiry and see what you really wanted i'm i'm like a, like actually following up to well, you obviously not going to say it this way but like i'm following up because i'm actually here to sell you and close you like what's the i'm following up cuz i'm just trying to screen you and see if you're actually a good prospect for us like what's the what's the context of this follow up call and and how is this person explaining themselves to the the prospect yeah, I mean, I think it's nice because it's not really a cold call. They're reaching out to us. And so why did you reach out to tell me what motivated you to call from the radio? What motivated you to click through our website? What motivated you to go through this uh, SEO? You know, however it is, we have m- many different ways. Click on that Facebook lead. Uh, you know, what motivated you? And just starting that dialogue. And then from there, the person who's calling, I mean, that's literally their job is to set the expectation as my job to see if we can help you by sitting with the financial advisor or certified financial planner. So it's interesting. So it's it's my job to help figure out if you would be self-served by sitting down with one of our financial advisors. That's kind of the way it's scripted for them. Without question. Yeah. It's all about, does it make sense for us to help you? It's a, it's a joint interview. They have to make sure they like us. We have to make sure they, they like, you know, we like them. So it's interesting, like I'm just thinking of it from sort of the positioning perspective, right? It's very clear now, like the person who's calling you is not the one you're going to work with, right? I'm I'm calling to figure out if it would benefit you to sit with one of our CFPs, one of our financial advisors, right? You know, parentheses, clearly not me, like that's not my role in this process. And so it's just getting set up with them that, you know, I'm... I'm here to facilitate your journey, which, you know, sales politely stated. I'm not calling you because you're going to work with me. I'm calling you to try to figure out if this is a good fit for you and for our firm. Yeah. I mean, and I say that also when I close every class that I teach, somebody, one of our colleagues will call to set an appointment, you know, but, and and I'm very forward with it. If you want it, say yes. If you don't, please put no, (laughs) say no. I don't want anybody calling you. You don't want calling you to set an appointment. So it's always, always expectation setting. And so how does the person who's following up like introduce and explain themselves? Like I'm 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 Joe and I'm the business development associate here at at, at Falcon Wealth. Do they actually say they're a salesperson? Like how did how does they that don't. work? It, they don't. So hey, I'm Michael from Falcon Wealth Planning, just calling to follow up on your inquiry that you had done. And so associate of Falcon Wealth is the key. Okay, I'm gonna I'm an associate with Falcon Wealth and I'm following up. So like I, I just it's interesting to me that so so many of us in advisor or like it is just so natural and automatic of of course you follow up on the inquiry when the inquiry comes into you and your firm like you the advisor follow up and you don't and it's 
clearly not slowing you down, or at least if, if it is, you're, you're more than making up for it. So I don't know, like, just help me think through, I mean, are we just all stuck in our heads thinking that we have, like, we have to be the ones that do the follow-up when the reality is like, no, no, you, you really, really don't. I would say just uh, from my experience, uh, the answer is yes. And, and here's why. I think one of the best pieces of advice that I received kind of starting the firm when I was going through my custodian, they said there was four major parts where people get stuck as a firm. And they said 50 million, because at that point, it's a one-man shop. 100 million, because at that point, you need other people to help you grow. So you're going to have to start relying on other people. Then they said something around 250 to 500 million, because at that point, you have to create infrastructure. And then they said the final one is one to two billion around there, because at that point you need mid-level management, you need other people involved to really help steer the shift. And it hit me, and you know that's really where I think people get stuck at a hundred million because you can't. I mean, if you market properly, if if your goal is to spend money in marketing and to get an aggressive amount of leads, you can't make every phone call and you don't want to make every phone call because you can't be the advisor that services them. You're going to have to have another advisor involved in that. You're going to have other people to process and help with the paperwork. It's just extremely difficult to do. So I believe the process that we have today is very similar to a process that people have north of $1 billion. And that that's my assumption. And I bet you if we asked a bunch of people, that'd be pretty accurate. And I guess this dynamic of like, if you want the client to work with you, or I say to me, like, if I want the client to work with me, I have to do the call with the client because I have to start establishing the relationship with the client so that they'll like me and trust me and want to work with me and hire me. Like, that's just not true. I don't, I don't actually need to be on that call for the client to trust me enough to decide to work with me uh, after all. You know, it's everything is situational, but if they're demanding me, I will be in on the second meeting, but I'll make it very clear from the beginning. You can call me for, depending on the situation, of course, you can call me for anything. I'll be as involved as you want. If you want me in a meeting, it's easily done, but everybody here has the same level of training, our same process, and will deliver the same message. So I can be involved, but it's not really necessary. If they absolutely demand it, this part might sound funny, I'll literally tell them I will charge them a higher fee. And I will double the fee. If they want to work with me, I will double it. And there's just no reason you're taking up a more vital person's time. And, and so, and at that point, they just, they make the call. Either they say like, oh, okay, I get it. I, I'll, I'll just take the usual person for the usual fee. Or if they're that obsessed with you, then at least it's going to be a profitable client for your time because you, you, you doubled the fee for your, uh, for your time and limited bandwidth. And, and I'm honest with them in a sense where they're reading indirectly, I don't want to work with them yeah, on you a daily basis. So. Like most, at the point you kind of say it like two or three times and then tell them if they still want you, it's double. You would hope most people kind of get the message that like, uh, <laughs> you're, you're- Well, we haven't had it. We haven't had it happen yet. So nobody has ever accepted the double. And I make it very clear, this advisor is going to offer the same message. I mean, I, I really beat them over the head. And then at the very end, if I feel even they're still wanting to work with me, I said, listen, I'm just I'm trying to save you money and get the same experience. My additional concern is that there's going to be times I'm going to have to reschedule this appointment. And I actually do that for a lot of clients where I just have to reschedule. And that's been, number one, an easy way to transition them to a new advisor. And number two, still setting the expectation where, you know what, a new advisor will get brought into the picture still. So to me, the other thing about the sales, like this sales process is, is just literally like, 
So from the advisor's end, I think there's this feeling of if I'm going to get the client to trust me and want to work with me, I have to be in that sales meeting in in order to do it. And and we think just by default put ourselves in that meeting. And I feel like there's also sort of the the similar but reverse argument of like how can anybody else sell me as effectively as me? Like how does how does salesperson associate a falcon while following up on your inquiry? How do they sell financial advisors of the firm when it's it's not them? Like that feels like a hard sales process. But again, maybe that's just us advisors stuck in our head about how we're used to to doing things. Like how does that how does that pitch work when the person is saying like all of our advisors are great, but you can't actually talk to any of them? You're talking to me. Obviously, you you don't put it that way, right? But if the prospect is called any other firm, they're probably getting the advisor who would work with them. So there is kind of a standout distinction here. Like, how does the how does this person sort of sell and close financial planning, the value of the great financial advisors at Falcon Wealth when they're not one? Yeah. So the initial phone call is just to set the appointment. I mean, we, we make sure to set the appointment. I think the toughest thing for us uh, was to get over is once we set that first meeting, still the non-CFP is calling them. And we set that expectation for information gathering. All that person's going to do is gather information. So there's going to be no discussion of advice. There's going to be no discussion of anything outside of getting to know you. And that was really just to leverage the advisors just because of how busy we are. And we, yeah. So, so let me just make sure I understand. So the goal of the call is just, I want to, I'm following up your inquiry. I want to understand why you reached out to us, you know, just the first place, like what brought you to us. And I'd like to schedule a time to sit down and get more information about your situation. Like the goal of the call is just to close for a follow-up appointment. Bingo. Okay. That's the first and, that's what the first one is. And then yep. the follow-up appointment, is this now another phone call thing or would this typically be in person? Someone's coming in the office at this point. Great question. The answer is it depends on where the lead's coming from. So if it's from our online or certain radio leads, it will be a phone first meeting, which is a phone information gathering meeting. If it's from certain SEO searches that really target 500 and up, or anybody who comes to my classes, that will be a first meeting in person. Okay. And so this first meeting, the focus is gathering information. So who's in this meeting now? Is this still business development associate person? Or is an advisor in the meeting or is it both like a business development associate and an advisor in the meeting? Yeah, great question. A uh, business development person is done after that phone closes, okay. as after it hangs If they up. have closed, so no if they have closed for an appointment, they're done. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And then from there, the phone call is set up either for the other financial advisor that would call and do the information gathering, or if it's from the other channels, whether it's uh, referrals, classes, whatnot, that will be in person. And our goal of the first meeting, always the first meeting, not the first call from the business development person, but from the first meeting is to get a second meeting. And that's just always the goal. It's always has been, always will be to get the second meeting. And then from there, that's where we will take our uh, personal questionnaire and we're able to, I like to review all of them. 
So I want to see every single one of them that comes through because I'm going to talk to the advisor. I can tell by looking at it in 15 seconds what we would recommend. And I just want to see me and the advisors are on the same page. And luckily, we are most of the time. But if it's complicated, whether it's a business owner or just a heavy tax analysis or real estate, then I actually uh, invite myself in on the second meeting. Okay. And and the idea is the second meeting will ultimately be the, this is where we're going to ask for their business. Exactly. That's where we're going to present them not everything. We'll give them everything. It's kind of funny. We don't withhold anything. We tell them everything they need to do. And the psychologist is, uh, psychology behind it is this is what you need to do, Michael. This is your account. You have to do this. Then you have to do that. Everything is you, you, you. And you can kind of see by how they react, their body language, the way they say, why do you keep saying you? You mean us? I mean, you kind of ask questions, you know, the answers to, but we give them everything they need to do. And I think kind of the mantra of the firm is planning made simple. I think the irony behind that is, there's, it's not as simple as people may think it is. Interesting. And so, and so the framing is like, I'm just going to tell you all the stuff that you need. I'm going to tell you all the stuff you need to do. And I'm going to tell you all the stuff you need to do. <laughs> and, and that at some point you'll, you'll get either two people, the, the do it yourselfers who will say awesome and take it and do it, which is fine because they probably weren't going to hire you anyways. Or the people who at the end of the day really do want to delegate and want help. And when you tell them all the stuff they need to do, the conversation pretty quickly comes back to like, well, can you help me do all this? Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's funny because a majority of our client, not a majority, but our niche client is actually engineers, which are historically DIYers. And it's funny when you go so intricate and you're just so honest and you give them absolutely everything for them to implement on their own, it's just funny how how well that works. And when you have simple conversation of social security and you go over maybe two to four strategies that they can maybe take into consideration, they start realizing something as simple as social security or retiring before 62 with no social security or medical insurance. You know, there's a lot more than just managing money. So help me understand what this looks like from kind of a, a planning process perspective is the point you're saying like we're going to tell them all the stuff to do does that mean like i've basically done a full financial plan between the personal questionnaire and meeting one and essentially presenting recommendations in meeting two while they're still a prospect anticipating and hoping that when they realize how much stuff there is to do they're going to say hey can you help me and you're going to say yes and then you get them as a client to help them with the implementation like are you doing a whole upfront financial planning process between meeting one and meeting two to get to these recommendations? Or are these more high level recommendations? And you say, we're going to drill down further after you come on board? Like how much planning advice stuff is going on across these first two meetings? Yeah, great question. So we do not deliver like an e-money plan to them on this second meeting. Everything is through just an assessment process that shows them where they are today, which is taking a look at their assets, uh, how retirement looks like. So it tells them how much they're currently spending and which type of income sources are coming in. And then we see the deficit and then we talk about how to bridge the deficit. And so we'll try to take a stab at it. 
of uh, kind of a high level. I say we originally 30,000 foot view. We're going to try to drive it or fly down to 10,000 foot throughout the assessment process. And if you hire us, that's where we dig in the weeds. And then we talk about taxes. So with every client, we have the tax conversation. It kind of helps having a tax focus. I feel that's where we get them. So we could be making recommendations like Roth conversions. We could be making recommendations like switching the entity type of your business, uh, you know, talking about salary, especially with the QBI, the new deductions. So there's a lot of things that we could be discussing and we'll tell them right then and there real estate strategies. So we'll tell them everything right then and there. And it's really a notepad. Our magic sauce, our fancy brochure, our glossy brochure is a notepad and a pen. And we just explain through writing and drawing and telling them this is how it works. And it's worked for us. It's very personal. It's very intimate. And they can take the pay. Hey, you want to take these notes? Or, you know, they'll understand it. It's a lot of scribble at the end of it if, you know, you looked at it, not understanding the context. But, I mean, they appreciate just the upfront honesty of everything. So, we have kind of an assessment. We do a Morningstar analysis of their holdings in addition to that with investments and estate planning insurance. And then from there, they make the decision. Interesting. And and I, I get it on the tax side in particular that, you know, tax is certainly an area where if if the people don't necessarily already have a lot of depth and knowledge in it, and, and most most consumers don't by default, hey, we, you know, we see a great opportunity here for the, for you to do uh, you know ongoing partial Roth conversions and fill up your low tax brackets every year, which will vary depending on how much you had in mutual fund distributions, other retirement account distributions, whatever you need to spend, and the timing of your Social Security, and like. I just told you literally what like what we're what we're going to do, and no, nobody can figure out how to do that on their own. Uh, <laughs> well said. I mean, that's the truth of it. And I think just explaining it to it, we actually will not take on a client unless they show us their tax returns. And we feel, hey, we're a financial advisor, a financial planner. I mean, we're not. Uh, you know, a lot of people say they're financial professionals. Like, have you even looked at their tax returns? I mean, how do you call yourself a financial anything if you don't even know? the most important piece of their financial situation, which is their tax return. I mean, you could purposely sell something and not pay any capital gains. I mean, come on, like you can. Uh, so for us, it's it's a very key part. And then we just walk them through their tax return. We actually do spend about five minutes to walk them and explain to them how their tax return works. So take me back a moment. Now that I understand a little bit more of kind of the the sales process. Sounds like, I mean, the as the advisors, like you are in there to ultimately do we'll call like the sale, like close the client and get them on board. The business development person just sits a little bit earlier in the process in trying to convert leads that sometimes need proactive and frequent and certainly timely follow-up that may be hard to do when you're an advisor with a lot of other duties and get them from you know stranger who made an inquiry to person who shows up for a meeting. And then once they've shown up for a meeting, now this is sort of the handoff to the full-on advisor takes it to the close process. So for the going back for a moment to that first call, like you had said as you frame it, like they they sort of have like two jobs, you know, f- help figure out if this person is a good fit for, you know, for an advisor of the firm, right? I.e., are they are they a good client for you? And then move them forward in the process. So you know, Get, get them to set a first appointment. So how much, I guess, like screening kind of activity happens? I mean, what kinds of questions or, or conversations is this business development person supposed to have in 
trying to vet, is this person a good client for us? And, and how deep do they go in, in trying to figure that out and make that call? You know, yeah, cl- clients, prospects, I mean, you'll be surprised when you ask them a simple question of what motivated you to get, you know, to inquire, to work with a financial advisor. You'd be surprised how much they'll divulge. And I think one or two follow-up questions on top of that. I mean, people like talking about themselves. At the end of the day, people like talking about themselves, uh, business owners, people in general, because we end up leaving that first meeting knowing more about them, arguably, than anybody else in the world. I mean, that's how in-depth our questionnaire process is. So there are some good screening questions, some good open-ended questions to kind of just get an idea of, you know, we try to categorize it. People are calling for a reason. We want to know what the reason is. There is a life-triggering event. Whatever the reason is, whether it's a, a death, a divorce, an inheritance, a retirement, something has happened while they're calling. And once we figure out what that is and we just uncover a little bit more about what stage in life they are in, okay, well, if they're in their 30s, they're not retirement retiring anytime soon versus somebody who's in their 60s, we can uncover a lot by just grouping them in certain I guess, you know, situations. And so then is there just a series of like scripted questions? This person has like 20 20 interesting probing questions you might ask. And if the the prospect says this and, you know, says they're uh, uh, approaching retirement in their late 50s, you're going to ask this group of questions next. And if the person says they're a 30-something who just had a kid and is freaking out about uh, starting a new job while they've got a new child. Like we have a whole other set of questions that we ask and probe on that end because that's our, those are different kinds of financial issues. Yeah, similar to that. I would say uh, it's more, hey, these are the kind of bullet points. These are the things that might come up, such as a 30-year-old saving for a house, you know, 529 plans. You know, there'll be something that's on their mind. So we might ask, oh, you have any kids? yay or nay? If it's a no, okay, do you plan on having any kids? Okay, is that any part of the planning that you wanted help with? So it's more just bullet points and leaving it up to business development person. So it's a little less scriptive. This person is very skilled that we have. He's been probably making calls for 30 years. So probably if it wasn't him, we did have kind of scripts before, but really it was three to five questions before and set the appointment. I mean, that's kind of uh, what it was. And and to what extent are they just kind of trying to queue up, you know, to get the prospect talking so you understand their situation better and, you know, the prospect will come out feeling good because we like talking about ourselves versus actual screening? Like, does the business development person have the authority to hear someone's situation and be like, oh, this is really not going to be a good fit? I'm not even going to try to close for the appointment at this point. We're just going to move them on or refer them out to someone else. Like, do do they make that call or do you make that call later? Like, how much actual screening and vetting happens at this stage? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. There are probably a handful of situations where he asks for a call back. You know what? Can I call you back? And uh, what it could be? I mean, we had a recent situation where somebody was a veteran that really just had question about his VA benefits. And he was, unfortunately, he, he was just not in a good situation. So uh, we kind of just did a little five-minute powwow. Hey, uh, we went to our other advisor to have him give him a call. And he just did maybe a 15 to 20 minute, we call it our good deed of the day. I mean, that's kind of what we coined it at our firm. And let's just help them 
uh, it's no benefit to Falcon Wealth at all. It's all about them. And we never want to lose that. We, we honestly feel we could just help everyone. And I feel good guys. One way, I mean, I think if you selflessly help everybody in a weird way, it could, it could selfishly benefit you later. And I think, uh, so we do try to help. So we might not bring them in. We might not go through the whole process. We can probably just fix that on the phone right then and there. When you make an interesting point, I think for, for a lot of us, you know, if you're, you know, we, we get into financial advising because we're, we're, we're helper types. Like I want to help people and give them advice. That's why you, why you get an advice job. And it's often really hard, I think, for a lot of us to say no to people who clearly need help, but just don't have the money, the dollars, the financial wherewithal to, to meet our minimums or pay us as usual. So we make exceptions and, and give discounts and, and try to come up with other workarounds because it, it hurts or it's hard to say no. I, I think just it's it's an interesting way that you've reframed it to recognize like, yes, we're absolutely still going to help this person. No, we're not going to do like multi-hours of meetings in the full process. Like if we know some things to do to help them, we will do some things to help them in a call, get, give them as much, give them everything you got over 15 to 20 minutes, and then call it your good deed of the day and and then move on. And you don't have to you don't have to gum up the rest of the capacity of the business taking clients who aren't a good fit, but you don't have to feel bad about saying no. Like, do everything you can to help them right there on the spot in that call in a limited amount of time, but then call it your good deed of the day and move on. Yeah. And it does something to your confidence too, where somebody can. You can look people in the eye and say you help everybody, and it and you mean it. You you can't fake sincerity. I mean, and I think it, it there's something with your confidence level that will happen just over time as an individual and as a professional when you truly know when people are just thank you so much. You don't know how much this means. This changed my life. I mean, these are impactful things here that you can't you can't teach. That's what the experience bucket. Where well, and, and I think I mean there is an interesting effect that comes from that that I know for for some advisors, particularly at, at firms that do have substantial minimums, you know, there there's a real challenge of trying to figure out how to market when you know you are not necessarily in a business development setting. You know, you're at a, a social cocktail hour, but someone starts talking business and you're trying to figure out if they meet your minimums and qualify and it's not really appropriate at this cocktail meeting to say like, by the way, what are your current net investable assets outside of your 401k plan and your primary residence? And so you have to navigate that awkward dynamic. Whereas if you have a structure like this in place where you can genuinely say, well, you know, we help everyone just, you know, call the office and schedule a time and and we'll see what we can do to help. And you just know like, that might be a 15-minute conversation or a 30-year relationship with the client, depending on what problems they come with and their financial ability to pay you and then your your ability to add value. But you don't have to be as stuck in the, I got to screen this person in this initial call to figure it out. It's a different dynamic. And you can say, well, we, we help everyone and we'd love to know if there's something we can do for you. And we'll just figure out later whether this is going to be a longer, more complex relationship or a little bit of a shorter and more direct one. I mean, there's so many things that can happen in that process. We just had one where we just literally pushed them on their way. I, it was just, you need to save this much percent a year, save it into a Roth. You're in such a low tax bracket, and then you'll be fine. 
you know, hey, you save up this much for a down payment. It's going to take you two years to do that. And we pushed them on their way. And it was, we call also those, we call those one and dones. So we had a one and done with them. Then two weeks later, we see something on the calendar and uh, just as a first meeting. And sure enough, they refer to somebody with $2 million. Like, I think with the sh- we're casting such a big net out there with the amount of uh, people that we're meeting with, just prospects on a monthly basis, it's something good is going to happen. And so with, with that said, with our advisors, I mean, we also say, uh, you know, if you're going to have people with $200,000, you're also going to have people with $2 million. We don't want them passing those off. And it, let's say they do, right? At the end of the day, we have to make a business decision. If their book is full, if you will, well, I want to give them to a top advisor. If they blatantly on the phone said they got $5 million, I don't want them I want them going with a very experienced advisor. Well, we'll, we have this thing. You can only pass off one time a client. You can only do a one-time handoff because we don't want them to feel like they're just getting passed around. So now that I understand kind of the, the, the sales process and the business development associates role and, you know, and and I get it like with a volume of, I think you said 150 leads uh, a month that are going on. Like that's just, you know, you're talking, dozens every week you know li- literally can average out to to half a dozen a day on a busy day so with i get the kind of the sales process with that flow so now take us back to the marketing side of how how on earth are you making 150 leads appear every uh every month like that that is a big number <laughs> that's a big number of leads and yeah so i well I, I guess actually let me ask one other question first so just like of 150 something leads that may be coming in, how many are uh, actually turning into clients? Like, what is this? Yeah, now that's the question. And actually, how many of those are turning into first meetings? You know, how many of those we actually get a hold of? I think the, so it's about 30% of the 150 we actually set a meeting for. Just kind of, that's a very, uh, there's probably about, I mean, gosh, they're setting, there's times they set five, six meetings a day. And it's, you know, it is, I mean, like I said, we do have another advisor starting uh, next month in January, but. Uh, so I find this interesting that, you know, like you got a person who lives this all day long. I, if they don't get back in 11 minutes, you're not happy with their performance, but still like only maybe 50 of 150 even get from an inquiry to a first appointment. So like, do you feel good about that? Do you feel bad about that? Like, how do I, I feel great about it. I feel absolutely great. Yeah, I feel great uh, because a lot of these are coming through SEO. You don't know how many of these sites they've clicked on. Most of these people probably clicked on like a Fisher type uh, retargeting ad. So a lot of these are just, some of them are just names are like Captain Ron or something like that. So some of these are are not even relevant. Some of them are other advisors trying to see what we're doing. So um, (laughs) sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've, we've seen that as well. Like firm launched a new marketing strategy and, you know, I, it's it's the interesting effect in in the marketing world that you know a lot of us do strides that kind of target more affluent folks, more affluent places to advertise. If you're doing direct mail, like you tend to hit uh, more affluent zip codes. You know, funny thing, like affluent prospects live there. So do other advisors a lot of the time because tends to be an above average income job. So yeah, every now and then we'll 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 see advisors that end up in our marketing funnels uh, as well. You know, we we. We hit them with the message. They responded. Can't fault them for it. 
I, I would probably say that uh, with referrals and classes, I'm the most, I guess, uh, I don't want to say aggressive with, but I'd be the most disappointed if it wasn't maybe an 80% to 90% conversion to a to an actual appointment. And of those, probably 75% of those become clients. So we do have a very high conversion with the class because they do end up uh, seeing six hours of a present, you know, of a class. It's actual class. They even get CE credit for CPAs. So if 150 plus are leads, only 50 of them turn into appointments, just I guess even in the aggregate, like how many of the 50 that are appointments are likely to actually go all the way through to a, to become a client? So let's uh, separate the internet from everything else. So let's just say the internet is, let's just say, 100 to 120. I would say on the non-internet, it's about 50 to 70% will become clients of the non-internet. Of the internet, maybe 5% will become clients. So not a lot through the internet. So it's a lot of volume, but we do track our leads heavily and where they came from. We have seen more and more that are referring to us. We will still put that not in the referral category, but in the internet category, because without that internet, we never would have received that referral. Interesting. And so and so you're fine. I guess this sort of gets back to why you've got this structure. I mean, look, at the end of the day, if internet lead flow is 100 plus, but only 5% of them become clients, you know, on the one hand, like that's very time consuming to work through 95 plus people who don't end up becoming clients. On the flip side, that's like five new clients a month off the internet. Like that's, that's a lot of clients, like that's a lot of clients coming in. That's a, that's a lot of people. It's like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to turn away five clients who just show up because God bless the internet and SEO. But it does speak, I think, back to the fact like, but if you've got to screen that many along the way, you probably need someone separate that just helps handle the business development. Because, you know, certainly the other note I know, particularly in the internet context is if they came to your website and submitted an inquiry, there's a very good chance it's because today is the day they are Googling around for financial advisors, which means you are probably not going to be the only advisory firm website that they contact. And if you are not the first to respond almost immediately, they're going to get pulled into someone else's funnel before yours, which I guess is part of the, this is why you want to get back to them in, in, in 10 minutes or less. Like you, you still got to work even to get to 5%, but, but if it's a hundred plus leads since five clients a month, like this adds up really quickly. Now, now I see like, this is, this is why you went from zero to $200 million in less than five years. Right. I mean, we committed very early on to teaching these classes. And so, I mean, I think just that in itself, my wife uh, being a you know professor getting me in kind of helped. I was teaching part of this like community education kind of deal. And it was originally just tax and social security. Then it moved to the six hour class. And then I just started going through FMT, you know, just, I, I don't know how many classes, probably 70 to a hundred classes a year. I'm teaching. So I'll tell you, Michael, without a supportive spouse, that's probably if anybody wants to go on this journey, I think the first question, forget asking yourself if you can do it. Um, your spouse is going to know better than you if you can do it. And then they're 
you're going to need their support because it was very, very difficult to, uh, even to this day, I mean, it's as my kids are continuing to grow, we do have some people lined up to start teaching classes, but I still want to teach the classes with, because I love teaching the classes. I absolutely love it. It's, I enjoy it. It's the best part of what I do, but the ones with like 20, uh, we'll call them buying units, 20, uh, you know, so it could be 40 people in the class if they bring somebody, 20 different households. I I still want to teach those classes, probably not 70 to 100 a year, but I would probably still want to do at least 25 to maybe 40. So, So let's talk a little bit more about these various marketing channels. Like you've mentioned just sort of internet leads and SEO. You've mentioned classes a few times. I know you, you're you also involved in, in radio. So talk to us about just like, what are the different, I guess, like primary marketing channels or strategies as you would look at it that that you focus on? And then we'll understand a little more of like what, what you're doing with each. Yeah. So the, the teaching of the classes uh, where we either do our own mailers to market these classes, or we use uh, some of these companies that do it for us. So cl- classes are huge. We set up our own through these people that uh, I guess you can call them SEO, where we just go directly to somebody that will market these classes through whether it's Eventbrite or Google or Facebook or whatever. So we just classes are a big part of the marketing budget. It's probably... Forty percent of the marketing budget. So how I, I keep going through them. And I, I have some more questions about how quite how that classes is working. So classes like doing mailers, setting them up, getting people in the room, and then doing the class itself is about forty percent of the marketing budget. So then, what what else is on the list? Google is huge. So Does that mean like um, probably Google AdWords or just yeah. like trying to SEO. Yeah, Google ones? AdWords. Okay. No, right now, just Google AdWords. So we do our own Google AdWords uh, with some retargeting as well. So that's a very big piece of it. So very similar to kind of the, the Fisher way of doing it. So that that's a big part. Then we'll have subscription-based. I mean, we don't get a lot from this, but we'll just get the normal NAFA, CFPs, FPAs, those type uh, that will come through. The radio. The radio, it's weird. I mean, it, you, I can go a month and a half and not get one phone call and I can leave recording a show saying, man, I nailed it, man, that was a great show and then get zero hits. We'll even rerun it just uh, on another time and get no hits. And then I, there's a show that I'm like, man, I did so terrible. Wow. I just, can we just run a rerun? They're like, no, 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 let's put it on. And then sure enough, we'll get five phone calls that weekend. And so it's so hit or miss with the radio. That is, that's an okay one. It's paying for itself. So that will continue. And I enjoy doing it. And so what does this look like from a budgeting perspective? You said like 40% of the marketing budget goes to classes. So what what goes towards Google AdWords? Google AdWords is probably close to 10%. Uh, now, this isn't of revenue. This is of the- Yeah, like of maybe, the marketing allocation. Right. And so, and we probably spend in total, I'm going to say probably about- I don't know, probably like 350 grand maybe a year in marketing. That probably sounds like a very normal number for us. $350,000 a year. It's like we're talking about $30,000 a month. Yeah, yeah, it's that's exactly right actually. Mhm. Yeah, and sometimes it, when it, uh, like there'll be hot seasons, there's times we're spending maybe 50,000 just on the classes and there's times like December we spend nothing. And so there's certain times where we'll really hit hard the classes. Just if it's for a tax-heavy firm, we want to market heavily in tax time. I got a whole bunch of questions about that, but I want to make sure I understand the the channels here. So then 
these like subscription-based paid web listings, you NAPFA, CFP board, FPA, I, I guess is kind of nominal. Like when you're spending $30,000 a month, the the NAPFA membership dues or, or FPA membership dues are kind of you know, trivial rounding error on the budget. Right. But the SEOs is where, you know, these people that are out there getting us leads. One is like smart asset, which I guess is like, okay, kind of, sort of. So we try almost everything. So we still have smart asset going. We have a billboard that has one of those electronic billboards. We have that going. Wait, wait, wait. Like, we have where, quarterly where, where's, where's, the, where's the billboard and what does it say? <laughs> You know, it's on the 10 freeway, the Interstate 10 heading uh, eastbound from LA. And so how does this work? Like, <laughs> even... you, like you, you point your phone at the billboard and there's a QR code that you get while you're driving by at <laughs> 70 miles an hour. Well, sorry, LA freeway. So like you're driving by at it's LA miles an hour. You're going like five, five miles an hour. Well, I guess so like on the LA freeway, spot. you could actually just have your business development associate under the billboard and they could do the whole conversation <laughs> and then the person just jogs and gets back in their car. That's probably a good idea. If we probably have to get a permit for that knowing California, but uh, <laughs> like, well, I mean, what's the goal with the billboard? Like, do you, do you ever see any results? Like does billboard marketing work? No, it, we've never heard. Actually, I've heard one person, somebody at my church came up to me and said, Hey, I saw your billboard. That's pretty cool. And that was the only person. About, so he joked saying, Hey, if you ever question if it's actually airing, it's actually airing. That's what he said. So uh, quarterly mailers was the same way. We do our like those coupon mailers that you'll see that come out quarterly with maybe you know 30 to 50 pages. So we're in there. One of them, we have the back cover. We've gotten some through there. We do sometimes postcard mailers. Those we've, we used to get at a point in time, I felt like about one per mailer, one person, one client per mailer. And each one would probably have 10 to 20,000 homes it would go to. So we would get a good amount. We have, we kind of calmed on the postcard mailers because we did like maybe six or seven of them and got nothing. So, but then at the same time, uh, this is where the billboard came in. We've had people who are clients now that would say, you know, I just kept seeing your name pop up. I just kept seeing it pop up. You couldn't <laughs> because that's what happens small. when you come to my website once and I pay for retargeting ads. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well said. So, but I mean, it was more than that. It was the quarterly mailers. It was a, he actually came through a class. He's like, I kept getting directed to go to this class. So it's like the world's longest sales cycle. Cause they come to a class, which you don't even market yourself. You just show, you know, show how smart you are by, teaching them all these uh, cool things of retirement planning and then, or taxes, and then they go through the process. So, but it, you know, those are the type of things where I think I know where, you know, you're familiar with it, but they don't have a triggering event. They have zero motivation to reach out. And once that triggering event happens and they go and type in financial planner or, you know, whatever, then, oh yeah, you know, I remember Falcon. And so, which is why I didn't want to do anything with my name or my face or anything like that, because, you know, Falcon is easy to remember. And so I've had that because we really drill deep, not in an obnoxious way. How did you hear about us? That's very important to us. Like, where did you get our information from? And what not only will our business development person ask, but we'll ask ourselves when they came on, like, okay, are you active listener to the show? Or, okay, so it was a quarterly mailer or the internet. Did you just, what did you type in? We'll ask that much. Like, what did you Google? Because you just want to know, like, literally what's, what's working. And I'm presuming that gets recorded somewhere as well. 
yeah, we have all the uh, we have a very good process of all the leads. So we can just click of a button. We can see through our own Excel, and we use Redtail as well, so we can see pretty pretty well. So you've got the the budget of all these different areas, and and help me just bring them for us. Like forty plus percent goes to teaching. 10% going to Google AdWords, kind of trivial amounts going to, you know, the the subscription paid web listing services because they're they're just not that expensive. Like what else is consuming this pie of the marketing budget? You know, we probably do uh I mean the SEO is expensive. It's probably 80 grand a year maybe. And and what does that mean as distinct from doing Google AdWords? Like what are you paying 80 grand a year for? For people who this is their full time job, that's what they do is they grab leads for people like us, and so versus us doing it in house where we just go into, I mean I don't I don't do it I don't know it our chief compliance officer does it so she goes in to Google and we have maybe three or five different I'm going to call them campaigns hoping they're called campaigns and so and just you're so hiring like create. outsourced SEO marketing firms that run a bunch of. Uh, SEO strategies and just do the work and try to make the phone ring. Right. Right. And so, and then what I also put in that bucket is like the Dave Ramsey smart Vester pro, which that might be more of a, you know, that's a unique one just because you get a lot of different people that come through there. And, uh, but anyway, it all goes in our, in our bucket of SEO. Okay. And so, I guess relative to the budget, like that, that, that can be a solid 20, 20 plus percent of the budget. I would say so. Uh, yeah. And then uh, we have, I mean, just weird things that we do. I can't tell you, Michael. I mean, uh, for example, football games, you know, those banners in a football game, sometimes in the out, uh, out, not outfield end zone, you know, they'll have our banner there, maybe five local high schools. You know, those are maybe about 500 to a thousand a pop. And, uh, so we do a lot where we just uh, whatever we'll try everything almost once, and then and then radio. Uh, I'm presuming I know most of the radio world now is not like, hey, you have neat expertise. Will you come to a radio show? It's usually more of like, hey, we're selling slots for radio shows. Would you like to uh, pay to be on a radio show? Like, is is this a you got to pay for airtime structure as most of them are now? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Correct. So, yeah, it's a. And so, what does it cost to like? What when is the radio show on? What do you do? What does it cost to do a radio? Yeah, good question. That's we also do marketing time slots as well. And so, I'm going to say a month. It's like two grand a month for a 30 minute show, and that's with time slot marketing. So, 10 30 second ads in addition to that that will go through random. You know, randomly throughout the day. 10 of your 30 second ads like you or for your show? It's for our show, but then that's maybe of the 30 second ad, that's maybe 10 seconds. The other 20 seconds is, hey, by the way, if you want a free financial assessment, please give us a call. We'll be happy to help. And then, you know, so it's a marketing on that end. And I'm actually shocked how many people have come through that versus the show itself. <laughs> Slightly depressing. Like I, I guess I have to do the show to validate the ad leading up to the show, even though I actually get it off the ad and not the show sometimes. You know, we, we come right after the Rams games. So we're the first show after the LA Rams play. And so many people just stumble on it that way as well. well and you get, you get everybody who just, you know, had you know, like Rams are losing 
but you got to listen to the game. So you listen in the car on the way home. Then you're not home yet by the time the game ends. So you get the show that comes on right afterwards. That also is, you know, the joke I have is uh, when people ask if I'm nervous about the show, I go, what's there to be nervous about? Not even my mom watches the show. Nobody watches it, listens to the show. So it's not a big deal. So you do all this different stuff. So I understand now where the, like, where the budget is going. So what actually, I guess, either A, makes the phone ring or B, like, turns into clients and business like what you know so i i got a sense of the pie of where the marketing dollars go so now what is the pie of where clients actually end out coming from or where new revenue ends out coming from so there's so once all these leads come in and business development sets them up and either we as the cfps do the first meeting or the other advisor does the phone first meeting and it, it leads in. So uh, we have our prospects. When I say meeting number two, that's where we're delivering the, I guess, recommendations from our assessment. That's where we're charging for that. We're charging for implementation of the recommendations that we gave. So we are charging a flat fee for our clients. Typically $3,500 is our normal fee. And so with that, if, you know, so they were like, well, what about investment management? What I said, no, 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 that's too much to talk about today. We're talking about financial planning and if financial planning makes sense. And if they say yes, then, then they just told us they want to work with us. And if uh, we ask them also, Hey, are you going to do this on your own? So it could make sense, but if they're going to do it on their own, then technically there's still a DIYer. And if they say no, <laughs> well, okay, so you f- know working with us is beneficial. You know you're not going to do it on your own. At that point, I look at it, it's up to us to lose them as a prospect to a client. Like, how do you not onboard them at that point? So of all these different channels, like where does where does new business actually come from? Like if 40% of your marketing budget is on classes, is that where actually 40% of new clients come from? If, you know, like 20% is going to SEO, is 20% of new business actually from from web leads? Like where does the, what does the pie of new business look like? It's still, I would say, it's actually funny how that worked out. Yeah, 40% is still from classes and then probably have 30%, maybe a third from referrals. And the rest come from all these other channels. So our goal is to get two new clients a week. That's our goal. Get a hundred clients a year. And we've been we've been doing that. So talk to us a little bit more about what exactly you're doing with classes. And sounds like that's that's kind of become the 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 primary anchor of the marketing. You've got a whole bunch of other stuff that you're doing around it, but it's your biggest spend and it's your biggest uh business source. So talk to us more about just what is this classes thing exactly? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, we use these outside companies to help uh, facilitate it, which sometimes even gets us a venue. But we we have our own venues that we do it at, own colleges and universities, so, and then we have. So let, let me let me pause you even there. Just you're using outside organizations to facilitate classes. So so what does that mean? Like they they give you a class and a curriculum and a script. They they're just kind of they're marketing organizations that just try to get people to show up the the proverbial uh, uh, backsides and seats like what what exactly are outside organizations doing to, to facilitate so they will do a hard mailer 
to uh, homes, uh, specific homes. So we used to do EDD, which is every door direct. So we just, whoever lives in that tranche or that route of the mail carrier, that's, they're getting our stuff. They pick and choose. So where we would have sent 10,000, they might send 1,500. So they have better parameters than us to send to people's homes. So they're doing a mailer of what the curriculum is. Now, for me, after teaching classes for now like six years, I have my own way of teaching. So I'll still cover everything they want to go over, but it's just my own way. So I have my own jokes. I have my own drawings. I have my own way I present. So I've never had anybody complain about it because we do cover everything, but I kind of mess with the slides they give me. I have my own slides. I add a bunch of things into it. It's it's more entertainment the way I look at it. So this started out as kind of a like a service that sells education, financial education class in a box. They give you the slides and they do the mailers and they put the people in there. You just have to deliver it and then hopefully convert it to business. But over time, you've taken their presentation, adapted it to be more of your own in your own style, but otherwise just running the same system of they do the mailers and they're marketing the class because it's, quote, the standard class and they're trying to get people to show up. That's exactly right. So they'll do most of the mailers. We used to do all the mailers in-house for a long time. And we did everything ourselves, which was kind of crazy looking back. I don't know why we did that. We even got the like medallion permit at the post office. And we would like lug in the back of my truck all the <laughs> 20,000 mailers. But uh, that, those days are over. Stamping and putting together and printing yourself? No, we, we had a printing company that would do it for us. So we did have that, but we would, what, what we would do is we would have to then like print off maybe 70 pages and put it for each like route and then take it to a post office and then they would distribute it to the carriers. So, I mean, it was time consuming and I just can't believe I did that. That was a, a big waste. I can't imagine. So now that you outsource it, can I ask like, who do you outsource it to? Like, who are the, who are the players that do this? If some, if an advisor wants to try like doing classes with mailers. Yeah, that's the FMT. I kept uh so FMT is uh one. There was one called Emerald that I used, but I think now it's like Broadridge or Broadcom. I, I don't rem- I don't know. Oh yeah, Mostly yeah, I think I think Emerald. Yeah, it was like Emerald Marketing Solutions or something and it got and it got sold to Broadridge. Yeah, so they were really good at it as well. But right now I just I use FMT and I do a little on my own. Uh, we have another SEO person that will just digitally market it. Are you using advisor specific like SEO people or just a generic SEO solutions platform and they figure out how to do this for you? Yeah, so good question. I would probably say 75% of the people that we use are advisor specific, but about 50% of those are individual people that just worked or was a marketing person at a firm, a financial advisor firm, and left and now is doing it for like five to 20 of them. So they're operating independently. So that's, we have one gal that does that and she does a terrific job. So help me understand the way this works from a, an economics perspective. Like you want to do a class with FMT. What do you, what do you pay and how does this work exactly? So you have to pay a licensing fee. Uh, it's like five grand and there's many different classes. So you have to pay the five grand per class you want to teach. So you know, you have to pay that up front. It's good for, I think, four years, maybe. And then from there, it's very territorial. So if you're in LA, you can't just say, I'm going to teach this class here. They're going to say, we already have an advisor there. 
And so luckily in our area, which is uh, kind of the Inland Empire is where I'm teaching, that's about 40 miles east of LA, you know, that there's now no real competition there for us. So each mailer, which has two classes on there, I want to say is like seven, maybe eight grand per mailer. And each class is two different days. There is an opening and a closing. So there is a, we'll say Tuesday from 6.30 to 9.30. Then they come back the next week, that next Tuesday, 6.30 to 9.30 to close the class. So each mailer is two classes, but in essence, it's four days of teaching. Okay. And and it's always like, it's two of your classes. Like, you know, Gabriel's going to be teaching, you know, next Tuesday and then a week from Thursday. So people have two different options just in case the first one doesn't hit. Well, uh, right. Yeah, the two classes, right. But if they come to a first, they pretty much have to come to a second or they can catch the other classes. Yes. Is that kind of just all in? That's the cost, like 5K every couple of years for for the class presentation itself, you know, a, a couple of those if I want to do more than one different type of class. And then each time I want to do a mailer drop, like I give them seven or eight grand, they're going to make how many people show up in the in the room, typically, you'd mentioned earlier an example of like 20 units. I don't know if that's typical or, or good or bad. That's high. That's, that's the ones I want to teach are the high, the, the one with a lot. I mean, there's times we had to cancel because there was nobody. So that was like a big waste of money. There's, and that does happen probably 20% of the time where there's less than three people, three buying units in a class. And so the irony is the smaller the class, the better you'll get turnout like you'll get more clients the when i first started off i couldn't afford to not show up to a class that was a lot of money so i remember having two buying units and a class of three people and i taught that it was like the most it was like a private tutorial it was all like awkward and they turned out to be a really good client you know a million north of a million dollars so so it's funny like the classes i'm like i don't want to teach in front of like four people today like that's awkward i'm embarrassed like that's what if one doesn't even show up now it's three people and so those turn out to be like the best ones but it's a it's a high energy course i mean a lot of people you know i keep them laughing the whole time i have a lot of fun little skits and stories in there it's i think of it more as entertainment and i enjoy teaching it and i can tell i mean they they really like coming to the class and so can you give me an example of just what what one of these classes are like just literally what do you what do you teach yeah, it's kind of so. There's different variations of the course. Um, there's one that's for retirees only. There's one that's for people maybe five years away from retirement. But I kind of teach them all the same. Kind of, I focus less on saving into retirement funds and preparing for retirement when you're already retired. But nonetheless, it goes over kind of our assessment process. That's kind of how I built it. So I talk about what's your magic number. How every person has a magic number. And I told them how to find that and still the variables of why that perfect number is not the same. For example, your mortgage might not be forever. Your social security might kick in later. You know, there's things that will happen that will make it a moving target. And then we talk heavily about investments, about passive investments. We talk about avoiding kind of commission-based advisors. We give them the stick of the annuity free dinner seminar presentation, what the dessert is. We go, so it's really, uh, I say it's designed to do two things, the class. Number one is to protect them of what's out there, because unfortunately, this industry, not everybody has their best interests intact. And then number two, to just give them options in retirement. So 
and that is just like people are aggressively trying to pay off their mortgage versus maybe getting a sticking with a 30 year, even if it's a higher interest rate, you know, you give yourself more control by going with a 30 year. And so how does this get marketed to the to the people? Like when I get the mailer, what's the what's the mailer going to going to say? Like, ever wonder what your magic number is? Come at Tuesday at 6 30 p.m. and find out. Like how does how does this get how does this get marketed? I mean, I guess it's it's FMT's job to figure out how to pitch this in an interesting manner, which is you know why they do a standardized course and so they can they can optimize themselves. But what do they send on your behalf to try to get you in the door? Yeah, so it's like this eight-page brochure. The front page, as as they mail this or as they fold it and tape it, it has these buzzwords like you know retirement course. They pay money to go to these courses, by the way. It's not a free course. So they're paying like $39 to $69 to go to these courses. And an FMT, I think keeps that. I'm not even sure uh, what that is. You also have to pay for the books, by the way. Each book is like 25 bucks or something that you end up giving to each uh, participant. So it has these buzzwords. It's like, uh, you know, uh, learn things like optimizing social security, tax reduction, uh, estate planning, insurance, uh, it just has all these things. Uh, how much to have for retirement? All these buzzwords, and then it gives a full curriculum, like breakdown inside, where it goes over estate planning, all the things, uh, insurance. We'll talk about Medicare. We'll talk, uh, you know, everything in there, life insurance, long term care, all the things that they kind of want to talk about. So it's this big long list of maybe thirty bullet points of what I'll go in each category, investments, retirement planning, financial basics. So we'll go over every single one of them. So I. Yeah, I can show you what that kind of mailer looks like if you like. Yeah, I guess if you wouldn't mind, if you can send it over, we'll we'll put it in the in the show notes if people just want to get more of a sense of what a what a program like this looks like. So this is episode one hundred and sixty of the podcast. So if you go to kitsis.com slash one six zero for episode one sixty, you're happy to uh you share so you can see a a, a glimpse of what uh what one of these mailers looks like. So so Gabriel, from your end how much of this is really on on you versus on FMT? I mean, it, from your end, is it basically just down to like, I got my presentation, I, I, I cut FMT a check for seven or $8,000, and then I show up for my four classes next month, and, and we see what happens? Like, and nothing else for you? There's there's two other things. First one is um, I have to bring a, a staffed body there to check people in, to answer the questions. People get lost. So I got one of my guys that will go there and sometimes they'll stay the whole time. Sometimes they'll just check people in like if it's the first day and everybody's there. I'll just say, hey, you don't need to stay. You can go back to work or, or hey, see you tomorrow. You know, if it's one of those late classes, some of them are in the middle of the day. And then uh, the number two is we have to find the venue. Like they say they'll find the venue. I didn't, we had venues and then we tried to see if they could find us new venues because they can get you accredited through the college or university, part of their like community education. So, you know, you get those enrollment papers from your local college or university and your name would be in there that, which is in addition to the mailer that FMT would do. But in short, it didn't seem like that happened. You have to do, you have to find the place you're going to teach. Okay. But and so you you find a venue that will work, you procure the venue, you tell FMT, like, here's the location we've set, and then that's what they put on the mailer. Yeah, exactly. And so is that in a is that a separate additional cost for you then? Cause you gotta 
rent the venue and space in addition to the uh, paying FMT for the mailer. Exactly. So yeah, you're, some of them you have to pay. Or, well, actually, all of them you have to pay, and then yeah, and then for the the body that's there with you. But I'm going to presume like these are not necessarily expensive venues. I mean, where do you teach? Because it doesn't sound like this is a you know go to the nice steakhouse and teach the class while they all get served their their steak and in, in sort of classic seminar approach. Right. They're, they're colleges, they're community colleges, they're universities like Azusa Pacific. That's where my wife teaches, uh, you know, like a Cal Poly or something like that. So, so not, not expensive rooms then I, I'm assuming. I don't think it's, I mean, the most will probably be is, you know, cause it's two nights, maybe 700, 800 bucks. So that's the most realistically they're about like 150 a class. So 300 total per you know two day course which if you're you dr- dropping $8000 on the mailer is just kind of a rounding error at that point as long as we get some clients out of it so so help me understand sort of the math of this like i i i'm going to drop 7 or $8000 in total you know mailer plus incidental costs for room and such i might get a a half a dozen to a dozen buying units there's two classes so maybe i've got like 10 or 20 buying units across my two classes, 30 plus of it happened to be a good mailer. So how like how many of these am I hoping or expecting are actually going to be qualified clients? Because I'm going to assume there's a bunch there. They're just not quality. They don't have the financial wherewithal to hire an advisor. Some won't necessarily want to work with you. So like how, how many of those would you expect to turn into qualified leads? And then how many of those leads actually turn into clients? Yeah, so let's just say it's a class of ten buying units. Uh, eight or nine of them will ask to meet with us. So uh, majority of the class will want a free assessment. Then from there, we'll say about eighty to ninety percent will actually come. So maybe one just—it's hard for us to get a hold of them. They just uh, wasn't priority to them or anything like that. Uh, of those, you know, our goal is one person a class. Okay, that's our goal per class that we teach. But on a class with 10 people, we'll probably get two to three or as much as, yeah, maybe as much as four per class that I teach. And, and that, like, at, at what client size or, or income or dollars? Like, is this, we're going to get two to four that might have a half a million dollars or a million dollars, or we're going to get two to four that might be anywhere from they'll pay my minimum fee all the way up to an affluent client like what what's a typical one what's a realistic expectation because i think there's a a perception of like well if you're if you're doing 39 dollar classes at community college you're not going to get very affluent clients who show up yeah i mean i would say uh let's say you get three clients uh one of them is probably just going to pay the planning fee and no AUM opportunity. The other two, average client of ours is about half a million. So they will have, I mean, our largest client with $13 million came from my class and he's in love with us. Just, I mean, he's, you know, how are you going to meet with somebody for six hours, give two hours of a free assessment? You spend eight hours with them and say, okay, see you later. Like they're, they know you at that point. And nonetheless, it's about our, even if you take the top 10% and take out the bottom 10%, our average client size is half a million. And I would say the classes are the same. So just doing the, the math. And did you say it like every client pays a, a $3,500 planning fee and then some of them also 
move on from there to do assets under management as well in in the sort of subsequent ongoing basis? Yeah, it used to be the first like three years, 80 to 90% would retain us where we manage the money. I don't know if it's just the markets up 30% or whatever it is, but uh, I would say this year we're probably more like 60 to 70% will retain us for AUM. Okay. But I'm just thinking through the math. So, like, if in a typical class, like, there's 10 units, the goal is one person a class, you usually get two or three. And is that like per class? So if a mailer is two classes, like off the mailer, your your goal is two clients and you may get more like four to six? I would say yes. Just note that there are some classes we have to cancel. We have to call them and move them because there's just so little attendees. So, but yeah, it, it does well. I mean, your math is right. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking through the the math here. So at the end of the day, like we get four to six clients. Let's even just say we average we average only four because every now and then we get a six, and then every now and then we get a, a you know a class we got to cancel with no shows. Like four clients. That's that's four people who pay a thirty five hundred dollar planning fee. So that's fourteen thousand dollars of planning fees, and then two or three of those are going to be ongoing. AUM clients as well. So half million dollar account size. I don't know. What's your average fee rate for a half million dollar client? Maybe one and a half. I would, uh, yeah, I would say maybe one and a half. Okay. So, you know, $7,500 per client. So, you know, two of those is $15,000 in the first year. It's like $14,000 of planning fees, $15,000 of AUM fees, $29,000 in, in revenue over the next year. For an eight thousand dollars spent. Listen, it's your math is right. It doesn't always work that way. There's sometimes it's much, much more than that. I will say this because I did give advice to a colleague of mine uh, in another region of kind of what we're doing, and I did warn them. I didn't know how the nicest way to say this to them was, but your personality may not work well for this class. I mean. And so I, I mean, I can't express the amount of high energy. I mean, the hardest thing is to go to sleep after I, I teach a six thirty to nine thirty class. I get home at maybe ten fifteen, and you know, it's it's I'm wound up. I mean, this is a high energy class. So that's all I will say is you have to be so you, you high just, energy. Yeah, it, it, it's not an automatic in that you know, you can pay the dollars, but to to at least get the butts and seats on average. But whether they convert, whether you are a a good teacher and a compelling teacher and engaging enough that they learn and say, I actually want to spend more time with this person based on sitting in a classroom with them for, for six to eight hours. I, I guess that's the double-edged sword. If you're good at teaching and presenting, they're going to get to the end of a six-hour class and say, it would be awesome to spend more time with this person. And if you're not a terribly good teacher, they're going to get to the end of their six hours of classes and say, all right, that was a life experience I'm not going to repeat. And they're And they're certainly not going to call you to say like, Hey, that class was long and tortuous and uninteresting, but I'd love to spend more time with you. Like that that's not really a conversation that happens. You know, it's funny, I say, I say a joke in the class, and let's say it's 8.30, and knowing it goes till 9.30, I'll say something like, what do we got? We got till like 10.30, 11 today? And then it'll get like a, a nice laugh out of the class. And then there's always somebody that says, yep, I'll stay as long as you want to keep us. And so, and it's just, it's a good feeling because you know, you know, if, you, if you've presented, you know, if you've engaged the audience and you, you have to get them engaged. It's just too dry of content, hence why I have my own material. But I'm still just wrapping my head around the math. Like at the end of the day, you know, a, a 
$8,000 spend, $29,000 in new revenue is sort of average metrics with the obvious asterisk, like some may go better, some may go worse. Like these, the, you know, uh, ev- everything marketing and sales becomes a, a, you know, some version of Nick Murray's game of numbers at the end of the day. But, you know, spending eight to get 29, uh, you know, you, you can wash, rinse, repeat that for a long time. <laughs> And, and I would cut it in half because I would say our average is like six buying units per class. I think the example I gave was 10 and maybe that I don't want to mislead anybody. Uh, so I would say about six and that's not including canceling some classes and moving people around. So if you actually look per mailer, we could do simple math and just say five and, you know, which would cut the 28 down to 14. But still, so in my brain, everything is numbers, right? Where I think we're just trained to be number oriented people with our profession and my brain, I feel like I've done the math where I'm like, okay, we can get to a billion dollars. I just need to spend $1.4 million and have the body, the manpower to do it. And so that's kind of, so now I just need to find $1.4 million and the body to do it and we can get to a billion. But I mean, realistically, it's, it is a numbers game. And I guess that's part of why, like, this is why you spend a bunch of money on, on marketing, you know, when you're when you're spending thirty k a month, three hundred plus thousand a year, just off of the cash flow of the business as it grows, how do you get one point four million dollars of money spent on marketing? Like, just keep doing what you're doing for another four or five years of letting the math compound. Yeah, I would say that's yeah. I would say there is uh, like I don't count the radio in that. I don't count so there. So it's not just because we spend three hundred thousand a year in four years, we'll be at almost a billion. Because some of those are marketing experiments, and not everything has the same marketing ROI as the classes. Bingo. I mean, hence why it's forty percent, and why I spend a lot of time talking about it. Do you worry from the flip side? Like, is is there a point where just <laughs> Every everybody in the freaking Inland Empire has gotten your mailers seventeen times over, and that well just taps dry, and and it won't work anymore. Or do you feel like there's ample space to just keep going? I mean, it's Southern California, so we have three mailers over here, and we've actually identified like another fifteen. So, so we really can still continue. It's just, we'd have to go to outside of our comfort levels. I've selfishly chose places close to my house because if I'm done at 930, people ask questions 10, I don't want to get home at 11. So help me understand how you just think about marketing ROI for this, for this spend, you know, the, like you're spending 8K on a mailer, you know, you're getting 14,000 of revenue to be conservative. You can do double that in a good class. You've got these other channels. They have their own things. Some work, some don't. Some you experiment with. So like, how do you think about marketing ROI? Like, at what point do you spend five grand to try a marketing thing and decide that was a good spend? I'm going to do more of that. Yeah, that, I think there is a human element to this. Is and we joked about the billboard earlier. I I I know there's not going to be any clients from that. But what I do know, it might be a trigger that may motivate us for an additional mailer that we may send or an SEO. So just the fact they know what Falcon Wealth is, they see our little feather logo, and they've seen it over and over and over again, it's hard to quantify that. But when I see something like a radio or a banner in a football field, part of me is, okay, well, that's free money. So if we get a client that generates $7,500 of revenue, I only spent 5000 a year for it. When my brain, I'm like, okay, well, I'm... I, I'll just do more. 
I mean, let's double it. Let's do more football fields because that's free money at that point. So I look at that revenue stream when it comes in as an ROI as that was free money. Because So that's why, uh, you know, like our chief compliance officer is like, just calm down. Just, I know you want to spend, just chill out. That's not free money. It's, and I'm good with money. It's not that we have an issue. It's in my brain, we would never got it if it wasn't for the experiment. I hear you. But then like, how do you ultimately figure out what to keep doing? Because otherwise in the extreme, like, look, you can spend $300,000 just on football field banners if you find enough high schools because LA is pretty dense. And like at, at, at some point, if you're not getting enough results, this isn't going to work anymore. So is is there some threshold of like how much revenue ultimately has to show up to say, I'm going to keep doing this or, or better yet, like this is working, let's double our spend on this? Yeah. So like the mail, the postcard mailers was a good example. You know, first three were good. The next seven were not. And so now we'll just sporadically say, okay, we'll do two, two mailers a year. Uh, so that's kind of a good example. Or, you know, these are our target markets. Like most of our clients are within, you know, this 10 mile radius. Let's just keep the banners there. Let's eliminate the others. So it, there is some thought that goes behind it, depending on location, depending on cost, and depending on just what have we gotten. If it was one client, like just, and never again versus we've gotten 10 and now it's gone dry. Like the, like the mailers for the classes. Okay. Like, did we really just beat up this area? Okay. Let's take a year break and let's go to this area and then we'll come back. A new set of retirees, a new set of situations has happened. As long as anyone shows up, it's a thing you'll keep doing. Is there some, like, if I, you know, if I spend five grand and I get one planning only client for 3,500 is, is that still a good spend where you'll, we'll put more. It's like, no, I got to get at least a client that pays an ongoing fee? Do I got to get two of them? Like, is there some relationship of revenue you get in marketing you spend to decide this is worth spending more on? Yeah. So originally when we spent $100,000, we would get back $100,000 in planning fees. Like we would pretty much, the, the planning fee they pay goes towards our marketing. Now it's not really... It's the same. So pretty much a third. For example, I still want 100000 in in marketing fees. And then there's another variable of AUM. Like some clients are like, listen, I don't care about this planning. Just manage my money. I heard you guys do a good job. You just just do this. Okay. And I, I just want you for taxes, uh, tax help with my business. I don't need this whole... I'm, I, I spend 120000 a year and I got $5 million with three paid off commercial buildings. I'm going to be fine. Help me pay less in tax. Don't show me all this fancy stuff. So, I mean, there's situations like that that will pop up and it's like, okay, let's just, you know, they're very direct. He doesn't want to pay this. He wants us to manage, go straight to retainer. So it really deviated a little bit just for as we grow. Certain people are like, no, 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 I only want this. Does that mean you just still end out with an aggregate goal? Like as long as I get $100,000 in first year fees, I'm covered. Although I guess as you're you're saying here, like if if just the 100K of planning fees cover the 100K in marketing, then like all of the subsequent AUM business was quote gravy, like was just additional return on dollars growing the business. So it is, is, so I guess that's part of the challenge is now that you get some people that say, I don't want the planning stuff. I just want your, to, to hire you for assets under management. I might not cover hundred K marketing spend and a hundred thousand dollars of planning fees, but clearly actually getting the ongoing AUM business is very, very good business. So we're not, we're not losing, but the math doesn't work in the same way anymore. 
Right. I mean, at the end of the day, we are very conservatively run, which is maybe crazy to some people to think uh, for spending three hundred and fifty thousand on marketing. We're we're still very conservative, so we don't look at the AUM. The reality is, if we spend three hundred, we might increase by half a million dollars of uh, revenue uh, year over year, just because of the you know AUM that we received. So, I mean, we're. We're definitely in the green. I just, you know, this is our livelihoods. We got a lot of people here. I can't, failure is not an option. So we, we have to be smart about this. So, which is why it's more like at 15% now versus historically 25%. Just we're trying to build cash reserves even more. Just eventually a market drop will happen. Uh, and that's when I really want to really go crazy in marketing is when that happens. Well, and I, and I guess there's a piece as well that, you know, I'm, I'm sure. Some folks listening to the podcast here are, are going to say like, wait, Gabriel, you're, you're charging one and a half percent on clients. You know, the proverbial benchmark fee for advisors is more like one percent, although to be fair, it's really one percent on a million dollar client. Most people have graduated fee schedules that are a little bit higher under a million. But like, do you look at, at pricing as a part of this? Do you worry about fee pressure in the advisor world is you're doing $3,500 planning fees plus a fee schedule at one and a half? You know, it's all about value. We've upped our fees a handful of times and it was almost the Disneyland approach. I mean, we're just so, so busy and people are not balking at our fees. Let's keep upping them. I mean, this isn't, and right now we're still very busy, but yeah, I, you know, you can only charge so much to be Competitive, but we're all, I mean, we say we will not quote you a fee unless we're saving you a ridiculous amount over what we're quoting. And when I say ridiculous, we say a whole bunch, you know, we say different buzzwords, but we have to save a much, 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 much more. I mean, it could be five to 20 times than what they're paying. And so for them, it's it's a no-brainer. And we found when we were charging $2,000 for a plan, it almost, they didn't move forward. It was like, what's the catch? Like, you're charging too little. You're going to save me $50,000 in 12 months and you want two grand? And it's going to be then after that, $30,000 a year on ongoing? And you're one at one time, $2,000 fee? Like it didn't, it, it just didn't register. Like, why are you charging so little? Or, and you need like, a dozen people saying this is the best money I've ever spent in my life to add that confidence go up where, you know, these people aren't going anywhere yet again. It's, we almost become a family member because we know more about their health, their finances, their taxes, their goals, their life, their family, more than anybody else in the world. And with that, so to answer your question is if you do not provide any type of value or a niche, I would be worried, but because it's so deep, I, we're not too worried. So what surprised you the most about just this journey of figuring out how to how to market your own advisory business and, and putting dollars in? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, kind of surprised me the most was how hard it is to find good talent was, was difficult as we're growing. That was very tough. For doing the marketing stuff or just for like serving all the clients you're getting because you're doing all the marketing stuff? I, I would say just a staffing was it was very difficult i i heard a saying maybe about 20 years ago saying you think it's expensive to hire a professional try hiring an amateur and that really that really hurt us more than one time and so uh, finding just uh, you know everybody especially when someone's trying to sell you also like these partners that you have they're trying to sell you seo and we i can't tell you how much we've wasted uh, just blow so just blown money away for just not working 
And so on the marketing channel, when you're just going to try everything, somebody promising the world, it doesn't always work. I mean, there was a time somebody fired themselves. They were like embarrassed at themselves. Somebody I met at a TD Ameritrade conference at one of their business consultants. They like, sorry, this just isn't a good fit. I don't know what's happening, why we can't get you any leads. Out of curiosity, what what was the worst marketing mistake or bad spend you've had? (laughs) <laughs> we tried to uh, well this was and it wasn't marketing it was a portfolio management software that we that also i met at a conference you know as we were scaling and not just doing irebal and td we had more at schwab we needed our own and at the complexity of our investment we do a lot of asset location type uh so we yeah we spent probably uh, just wasted twenty grand just a complete waste. It was what I thought was going to be a one to two month onboarding process was over a year onboarding process and it was very bad. So that was that one just kind of sticks out because we really needed it at that point. And like was that an aborted project or you 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 are on the system now? It just took way longer to develop and get oh no we we aborted it because he wanted more payment he's like hey listen i've been losing money these people are working on the back end so that's not my problem i mean it was it was unfortunately it was a hey you lost and i lost i lost 20 you lost i know your he showed me his spreadsheet of how much he's spent we both are losers here was, was this just a bad migration it was. I, I honestly don't know why it was so bad. It's. I mean, this person works with TD and Schwab. I mean, he goes to their conferences. I mean, I don't know why it was so bad. I, I, I really don't know. I think I really don't know what it was, but we had to abort it. We're with Morningstar right now. That's working out really well. TRX or Workstation. I don't know what they fully call it, but we're, we're there. Hires. We uh, Hires were... You know, we thought we would hire people out of college and maybe it was too much, maybe too arrogant thinking you can, I could train anybody to do this. This stuff is easy. In my brain, it's easy. Because you've been doing it for your whole also, career. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was rough. That, yeah. So yet again, the hires were, were tough. Hiring people just because they have a CFP doesn't mean you can do the role. That's also was a tough learning lesson. What about on the, on the pure marketing side of worse spend you were really excited about that didn't work out? I would probably say we tried a new area, new location, and we probably spent 20000 in mailers to that new area. This is when we were doing it in-house, and it was an absolute flop. It was an absolute disaster. It, we got one person that was an attendee that really didn't work. That one was rough. And then we had our printer... Something happened in the printer where he, the printer printed the like last week's class on the mailer that was already complete. And that was a whole, I mean, he kind of like apologized and kind of comped it, but I mean, that wasn't cheap. That's like a five grand mistake. And, you know, so that was just, so we had to implement a new process. Uh, it, it was kind of his fault, kind of our fault, but you know, at the end of the day, it's our fault. We have to have better processes in place to dot the I's, cross the T's. So that's, yeah, that was that yet again, we did majority of our growth came from when we did it in-house, then we kind of went more towards uh, FMT later. So what was the, what was the low point for you on this journey of building the firm over the past five years? You know, making the decision to go on the own was uh, tough. I was in a, you know, I, I wanted to leave uh, my firm that I was at deciding if I should work for someone or do it on my own. 
you know, really just being so unhappy of where I was at, just, and looking at my finances, looking at my situation, my wife was five months pregnant with our first child. That was tough because everybody was saying I should do it. Just do it. I come, my, my in-laws are kind of entrepreneurs and, you know, my side of the family, a bunch of uh, engineers and uh, conservative people don't do it. And the patriarch of the family is just like, don't do it. You can get a good job. You can do well, just go somewhere else, do something secure. And, you know, it, that part was that part was tough. I mean, my 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 mother in law said something that I will, you know, remember forever. And this was what actually was probably the what do they call it? The horse that broke the camel's back. She says I believe. So she was pushing for me to go independent. With granted, I had virtually nothing. I had no AUM, nothing. I had like maybe eight clients with five million dollars. That I'm like, you know what? We've become like friends at this point. They would they will start it with. So I mean, nothing. And my wife was, you know, she was a getting her PhD. She had a stipend of 32,000 a year. I mean, like nothing uh, we had. And so outside of some savings and uh, she goes, I believe in your success. She's very religious. She goes, I believe in your success, just like how I believe in God. And it was like, how can you not? (laughs) And it was like this silence. (laughs) I guess the upshot at least is it's a lot better than going to your in-laws and need to explain why you're going to leave their like five months pregnant wife at home a lot because you're going to build a business from scratch that's going to chew up a whole bunch of your time. Like they're on board. <laughs> so like if, you, if y'all will give extra babysitting time, I'll go do this business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that was that part was tough because I was I was scared, but you know I wasn't I I didn't I was scared because I it, it was weird I didn't doubt the success. I just was scared to death of how much headache and heartache it's going to give. How much work I'm going to have to give. I'm like, man, I'm not really going to see my daughter. Like, that was more what was going through my head. Like, do I want to sacrifice this? And you know, having that conversation with my wife. Hey, listen, hun, this is we're going to do well, very, very well. But there's going to be so much. You can't say, hey, you're oh, you're picking up this phone again. Oh, you're on your phone all the time. Oh, you're not home. Oh, you didn't help with the kids. Like that can't be, I can never hear that or it's going to mess with me. I mean, that was, that's the part for me when I said low point, I knew I should go on my own. I just really didn't want to. And in hindsight, I, I, in hindsight, I don't know. I probably, in hindsight, I probably just wish I just, found a tamp and stopped at a hundred million. And, but now we're just kind of building something really great now. And, you know, I just, we're going to keep going. And how did you get started on just the, the marketing engine? I mean, I get now like, you know, spend 8k, get, get 14 to 29, take some profits, reinvest, like the, the math starts compounding pretty straightforward, but like you, you don't, you don't get that when you're starting from zero. So did you just, like have savings and plow savings into these kinds of marketing campaigns from the start? Did you do other things to begin and then moved into this once you had some revenue going? Yeah. (laughs) So I worked at TD Ameritrade for about four or five years and uh, was a high producer over there. And I was just a high volume advisor. I mean, I was on the phone. Anybody who knows me that 
when I was there, I mean, I was making a hundred calls a day. And so I casted a large net when I was there. So what I did was I had some savings and I just rolled the dice. I said, you know, I know the areas where a lot of my clients were. I spent $50,000 for 200,000 postcard mailers, pretty much announcing uh, Gabriel, Principal Falcon Wealth. It's kind of like an announcement, but it went to a bunch of strangers and zip codes that I knew I had clients. And that was a roll of the dice that worked out really, really, really well. I mean, we got like 30 clients from that. And you like, you got people, you got strangers or you essentially like, this was a way to actually get some of the people you worked with the TDA because you're not allowed to solicit them directly because that's a violation. But hey, if if you send mailers to 200,000 strangers and it just so happens a few of those former clients happen to get them, like that was just open marketing. Right. And really those original eight that I had, I actually had a stepping stone in between TD Ameritrade and Falcon Wealth Planning. I worked for an RAA firm. So it was over already over a year. So these people haven't heard from me in a while. And it really is those eight that reached out to me that, you know, so really there was no solicitation, but it was uh, of the around 30, one of them was a complete stranger. Hey, you must be somebody big if you're sending this out like that. So (laughs) that was one stranger. The other, we'll call it 29 was, you know, hey, Gabriel, what happened to you? You know, hey, we miss you. Hey, can we reconnect? Uh, Hey, I heard you left, Uh, you know, so, uh, and it just worked out perfectly. Every single one who reached me ended up being, uh, I shouldn't say that, but I would say about 80% that reached me became clients. The other 20 just wanted to see how I was doing. Well, it's it's an interesting way just to work around the dynamics of of non-solicited. So like, no, I didn't go back and solicit them. Like I sent a mailer to 200,000 strangers. <laughs> like not, not my fault. It turned out a few dozen of them happened to actually be people that I knew in my old job. <laughs> it's funny because TD Ameritrade then reached out, uh, you know, with one of these letters and I had an attorney help with the business. I'm like, Hey, can you just explain to them the situation? And he said when they were on the phone or maybe it was a mail correspondence he said it was there was a point of time where they were just kind of laughing at the situation (laughs) wow can't believe he did that wow okay well he's like hey i got proof i attached it look at exhibit b and then they were like just laughing at the situation like all right well that's that that's not a solicitation that like (laughs) i I talked to an advisor once that did a version of that in a in a small town he bought a billboard of like the one highway into town that like everybody takes in and out of town. And he, he, he bought the billboard for like three months announcing the new firm and that he had launched and, and same thing. Like he had a non-solicit, he had to, to work around, but you know, the, the billboard in his town was the equivalent, I guess, of 200,000 mailers in yours and a whole bunch of his former clients found him. He said like, didn't get a single other client off of it, but my former clients who liked me and I wasn't allowed to contact were like, Oh, that's what you're doing now. And they called. And it, <laughs> That's and it, such a great idea. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't a solicitation because it was just, it was an open, it was literally an open billboard. It's like, I didn't, anyway, <laughs> like, I published a billboard. It's not my fault that some former client. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So, I mean, there's different ways to do it. I chose a certain cities that were more affluent and I knew I had a lot of clients, but no, it, it's whatever works. I mean, I had, that one was tough. And that, that actually reminded me as you asked that question, another, uh, probably one of the, a low point as we're starting and kind of struggling two months after doing a class is spending like our last of our savings, okay, on a class that only had between a mailer, which remember is two classes, we only had four 
registries for those two. And that was like a low point. And I actually ended up going about $50,000 in credit card debt after that, which ironically wasn't a low point because you know our sales process was so long. And then we had people paying planning fees. I, pretty much the company was financed from our savings and a zero interest credit cards. I mean, we didn't pay one penny of interest. It was all zero interest. I just kind of played that game. But I remember when the savings virtually went to zero, that was like, oh God, I know it's going to work, but man, just turn the corner. Come on, you can do it. And did you ever have doubts as you're like racking up credit card debt when all we do is tell clients, like whatever you do, don't borrow on your credit cards to start a business? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if, no, I would say no, uh, because you know at that point, I already kind of went through my savings. I already was onboarding clients. I was waiting for, you know, for us, at least uh, the way we do our firm, it's like, okay, come on, July 1st, just make it till July 1st. We're going to get that big billing and we're, we're set just July 1st. And then everything was like, okay, by October 1st. And so it was always like just that waiting on that quarter to hit. So for that, it was, but I mean, I carried those credit card balances. There was zero interest. I, I played that game for a while. So it took me two years before I had, I was completely out of debt. As you look back, like anything that you do wish you'd done differently? Like what, what do you know now you wish you could tell you from five years ago as you were launching? I wish somebody would have told me you're making the same amount of money at 100 million than you are at 200 million. And I'm scared it's going to be the same thing at like, I was already doing the numbers. I'm like, okay, at 350 million, man, I'm not going to make that much more because now this person has to get an up and pay that that much in marketing, like that much more ops and planning. We're probably going to need this person. I'm like, man, it's not that much more money. And I, if I wasn't there is an interesting effect yeah. that like the the second hundred clients, the second hundred million is nowhere, nowhere near as profitable as the first, sometimes not profitable at all because you just have to start hiring people and building infrastructure and you only get a really small profit margin off that maybe at the end of the day in the building phase. And so it doesn't turn out to be as profitable sometimes as it as it grows as people expect. Yeah, we, we building infrastructure is I think huge from moving CRMs, creating a network to doing managed IP or tech solutions to phone systems to the portfolio management it's like man like but the good part is we did and and we really got stuck for a very long time i feel like between 150 to 170 million we were just like nothing would move we were focusing so much it was always on the phone trying to get a new program or software it's like building a company versus listen i'm just good with clients just i need to get clients i'm wasting all my time uh, with this. But uh, I think if I were to change anything, I kind of, uh, if I probably could have relieved a lot of headache by just going with the TAMP and really just maybe in high, obviously hindsight, but I probably would have went with the TAMP and stopped at like a hundred million and just lived like a good life. And that's, that's probably what I don't say I would do it differently. I was motivated by just like, okay, we got to be the biggest and the best. You know, I wanted to, uh, I was, you know, motivated to, you know, I left my other firm just kind of wanting to show them like, Hey, this is, if we did it my way. This is how we could have done it or not quite that, but similar. So I was kind of motivated a lot by that. I probably would have just kind of Took it. That that motivation really helped me with those late nights teaching classes. I mean, but now I probably now that's that's fading. I 
probably. Now it's all about just getting to a billion and helping as many people as possible and bringing on just really good people. We call it the Falcon family. Now it's just more about, hey, we got something really good here. And a part of me feels in 10 years from now, instead of having like 10,000 RAAs, there might be like less than a thousand, less than maybe even 500. Part of me is like, okay, let's see if we could be one of those 500. So as as we wrap up, this is a a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. And so you're on this incredible success path of $200 million from scratch in five years and, and still aggressively marketing and powering forward from here. So you're, you're, you're certainly on a successful business trajectory, as you pointed out, maybe, maybe already double the size of what you actually needed just to have a good size practice and live a good life. So as you go forward from here, like, how do you define success for yourself? Yeah, I think it's twofold. I mean, you know, I come from a very large family and I was always raised uh, being compared to somebody else. Just, hey, you got to go to school so you could be a doctor or an engineer like this cousin or uncle or from immigrant parents. And it was always just, you know, we call them legends in the family. And I think uh, my two part is I've always wanted to be a legend in the family. I've always wanted somebody to raise their kids or just a family member saying, hey, do this and you can be like Gabriel. You can be like Gabe. And so that was kind of always my internal like success level is I just want to be forever. And, you know, my dad had 12 brothers and sisters. My mom had like seven and they've all have my uncle. That's a really big family. (laughs) Massive. I mean, we have well over 170 cousins. And so it's it's like a little town almost. And then my dad's uncles each had 10 kids. I mean, so it's just like the Shaheens are just from LA to New York, Chicago. I mean, they're all, they're all over the country. And so just to be that, I think is huge. And then kind of the second part, just kind of more defining it for is when I can retire at any given moment, and not have to worry about any financial needs. I think where it's it's already not about money. If it is, we would stop and I can just pocket the marketing dollars and work off referrals, which is still almost a third, you know, that's still a good thing. I think once I realize personally that I've saved enough, I was smart with my money, invested enough where you know, we don't live a lavish lifestyle where we can just, you know, I could retire at any given moment and we'll be fine. That to me will be a great feeling because I love what I do. If I win the hundred million dollar lotto today, I will I will show up to work the next day. Probably lose the tie, but I'll show up to work the next day. Not change anything. Well, amen. Well, sounds like an amazing journey. Well, curious to see. Do do you do, do, is there a benchmark of how large the firm has to grow to to check off legend in the family <laughs> status? Because like. like I don't know. Was there another advisor that did a smaller number in the family? So you just got to beat them? Or is this like a an open-ended goal? You know, it's more, I know with a, a, maybe a, a billion under management, I know we'll need this large of a staff. And I think it's more just, hey, he, he's built a real company versus something else. I, I think that's what it is. A billion to me has always been kind of that mark. I mean, kind of for me, uh, I was at a TD Ameritrade conference and somebody was talking to me about kind of the vision of the company. And I said, I really can't envision past one to two billion. I, I just can't. I, I I know how many staff we can have. I know what we would do. After that, I could see why people would get stumped 
at one to two billion dollars. I think I would be one of them. And the advice the guy told me is, you'll be surprised once you get there, you'll know what to do, which was really good advice. And I, so we'll, we'll see, God willing, that happens. Well, I hope so. I, I appreciate you joining us to share the story and the journey on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. I really appreciate it, Michael. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for all you do as well. It's your great and ambassador for the industry. So I really appreciate it. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.